Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by Great Jones, a startup that makes high-quality cookware that's beautiful and affordable. There's a reason why I'm an investor. Grace and I cook at home with Great Jones all the time, making oxtail in a cast iron enamel Dutch oven and spaghetti with fish sauce in their stainless steel stock pot. Great Jones starts at $45 and their whole set costs $395. I'm excited that they can make high-quality cookware more widely accessible. Everyone needs to upgrade their kitchen tools and Great Jones is a great way to do it without spending a fortune. I highly recommend it. Go to greatjonesgoods.com and use the code CHANG, C-H-A-N-G, at checkout for $25 off. Once again, that's greatjonesgoods.com and use the code CHANG at checkout for $25 off. It's a great gift for the upcoming holiday season. Everyone can use Great Jones. And now, The Dave Chang Show. Welcome to The Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Big shout out to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music for the introduction. Uh, you should check out Yola Tango if you're in New York City for their Hanukkah run of shows at the Bowery Ballroom this year. They used to host this at Maxwell's in Hoboken uh, until Maxwell's closed. Rest in peace, Maxwell's, one of my favorite places to watch music. But if you haven't seen Yola Tango before, you should check them out because this is one of the best like series of music out there. And uh, it's fun and festive, and they always have fun guests. So if you're in New York City, you want to get out of the house, Check it out. Uh, I think a few of the dates for the Hanukkah series are already sold out, so go buy your tickets. Um, this week, I wanted to get to introduce my guest. His name is Mike Novogratz. If you are not in the finance industry or a, a collegiate wrestler, you probably have never heard of this guy. He's a good friend of mine. I've gotten to know him pretty well over the years. And how should I say? He's lived an incredibly full life. An incredibly interesting dude. He has done a little bit of everything, and he's been wildly successful in finance. I needed to get a better understanding of what private equity, hedge fund, currency trading, all these things that he's done and done very well at. He has become one of the preeminent voices of blockchain technology and cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and all that other stuff that you hear about. And I just sort of roll my eyes at. I don't own any, but I wanted to sort of challenge myself because this is a guy that I respect. He's very curious. He's incredibly intelligent. And I promised myself I'm not going to sort of talk about things I know nothing about. You know what I mean? Like in a dismissive way, I want to learn more a little about what he does. And when I talked to Mike, I realized, you know, maybe this is the future and I should be open to it and not just sort of lament that this is such a tech bro, finance bro type of thing. Because Mike, while he is successful at this, he's not just your stereotypical finance guy at all. He has so many surprising, thoughtful things to say. Like one of the most well-versed people I know, and he's going to talk about capitalism because he's so adamant about giving back to the world and the community. He's been a huge advocate of reform in the American prison system and in criminal justice inequities. 
obviously wrestling. He can talk your ear off about Fortnite and World of Warcraft, about just about anything. He is someone that I really listen to because I don't normally listen to just like a normal finance guy. Anyway, let you guys listen to Mike. I know that some of you guys in the hospitality industry would, are probably thinking, oh, I don't want to listen to some finance person. But I really recommend you listen to Mike. He's lived a lot. He's gone through a lot, a lot of ups, a lot of downs. And he's one of the most resilient, gritty people I know. And there are some kernels of wisdom that he drops that I think are incredibly applicable to any industry, particularly the hospitality industry. Um I don't really have a good my opinion as fact this week, so we're just going to skip that all together and get straight to the podcast. Uh, this is my conversation with Mike Novogratz, the 2019 version of a Renaissance man. A little bit of everything, very successful, very interesting, lots of good advice. So you might be asking, why am I interviewing Mike Novogratz? Well, you know, having this podcast, I have the freedom and the curiosity to talk to people that do stuff that I have nothing, I know nothing about, and it's definitely not in my field, but I've become good friends with Mike over the years because we've ha- I had a friend that used to work for Mike, and somehow Mike and I used to co-manage a fantasy football team. Now he's a uh, competitor. Chris Ying is actually managing Mike's team. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about tonight because Mike Novogratz is one of the great traders out there. And I was like, how do we talk about something that most of, I don't assume my audience doesn't know anything about, but I still don't know what anything is. I don't own any Bitcoin. I know nothing about it other than you are Mr. Bitcoin. But even before Mr. Bitcoin, I find your story to be incredibly inspirational. But like, if this audience knows mostly about food, what's a hedge fund? Let's just go basics. Right. So traditionally, right, people invested in what we call mutual funds. So give someone your money and they'll buy you stocks or they'll buy you bonds. And hopefully the stocks go up in price. The reality is sometimes stocks don't go up, they go down. And so hedge funds were created by people that thought they were smarter than the market and said, hey, I can make you money if stocks go up or go down. And I can make you money and not take as much risk to the market. And so they were hedged, i.e. you put a hedge on. And so hedge funds grew into this classification called alternative asset management. It was also a way for the best money managers to charge much, much higher fees to their clients. Some deserve those fees and some didn't, right? And so if you consistently beat the market, a guy like Stan Druckenmiller beat the market for 27 straight years, never had a down year. His clients were willing to pay him almost anything. Stan, manage my money for me. Um, 2008, when you had this giant collapse and stocks were down 45%, he didn't lose money. And so hedge funds are really just asset managers, but they can be both long and short. And how does that differ from a mutual fund? I know you sort of just described So mutual funds are collections of money. So I set up a mutual fund. I take people's money, but I'm always just long. So I'm long stocks. Now, I might pick different stocks. I might be long Google, Amazon, and Yahoo, and and not Ford and General Motors. And wow, I would have done a lot better being long the tech stocks. Uh, But I'm just long stocks, or I'm just long bonds, or I'm just long, you know, foreign bonds. And when you say long, what's that mean? Long means you own them. And so you're hoping the price of them goes up. So when the price goes up and you're long, you're happy. 
when the price goes down, you're unhappy. <laughs> but if you're short, let's say there's a hype restaurant that everyone thinks is the greatest thing. And you're like, I don't really think that restaurant's going to survive another week. You know, the, they're going to run out of steam. They're, and, you know, you want to you get short it. You're negative it, so you can short their stock. Short means basically betting against it. Betting against it. It's like the no-pass line in crabs. Which I'm so very fond of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't do that in a mutual fund. And, you know, all these years, I, I have a lot of friends that are in your business, and I don't really know what it is because it just is another world to me. But I do know that your story is fascinating. You've been at the top of your field several times, and you're just not like – I don't think I'd be friends with you if you're just like a finance guy. You know what I mean? Like you are the furthest thing from someone I would think <laughs> of as a finance guy. And I – don't even know how to describe you to people. Because when people hear like, hey, you're friends with Mike Novogratz, I'm like, yeah, I love him. And he's like crazy in the best ways possible. Why do you think you're so different than the traditional finance hedge fund dude? You know, I grew up in a big middle-class family, six brothers and sisters or seven of us. And I think part of having a big family is no matter you know, how well you do, your brothers and sisters just take you right down. And no matter how shitty you do, they pick you right up. And so you never really think you're that hot because <laughs> if you do, you're going to get smushed. Um, I was a wrestler. It's another sport where you get the crap beat out of you all the time and no one never loses. Even the great Kale Sanderson lost. And so you learn to get knocked on your ass and kind of get back up. But it's a humbling sport. And I think that makes you kind of a little crazy, but a little more real. But one of the, the risks of success for anybody, for great chefs, for great hedge fund managers, is you start thinking your shit doesn't stink and that you're special. And I think that's the kiss of death in a lot of ways, at least in terms of being a decent human. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, environment, you know, the family you grew up in, the neighborhood you grew up in, the sport you choose, where you decide to raise your kids, all of that has a lot to do with, uh, you know, how you vibrate in the world. When I watch The Royal Tenenbaums, one of my favorite movies, and they have, like, the three kids that have done, like, great things as kids and then maybe a little bit less so growing up. But the Novogratz clan is actually the, the successful version of The Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, but if you, you, know, if you pull, if you pull the, the curtain back on the Novogratz clan, we're as dysfunctional as any good family. You know, we've got our, our wins and losses and our, you know, triumphs and tragedies. It's uh, pretty crazy to have so many of you, basically all of you doing – really success. You're all successful. It's, it's fun. Um, and you know, some of that is you play on each other, you know, you see someone that you intimately know do really well and you're like, well, damn, he ain't that smart. If he can do it, I can do it. And so there's a little bit of drafting, I'd say there's support. Like my sister has a spectacular network, right? Her and her husband. And what, 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 and who have, what do they do? So my sister runs a thing called the Acumen Fund. She's, she was on Forbes's cover of like the hundred business living business legends. Uh, and she was one of two that were not for-profit businesses, you know, Sergey Brin and, and George Soros and, and, uh, Richard Branson and my damn sister. I was like, what? <laughs> uh, and so she's really helped create this field of impact investing, trying to bring long-term patient capital to people that wouldn't get it in Africa and India and all over the world. Uh, her husband runs the Ted Founded Ted. Uh, he, he bought Ted Found and really, Ted. really cre- created Ted in, in the way we know it with the videos and the open source philosophy. And so, you know, their network is awesome. And, you know, my network plugs into their network, my brother's network. And so you start all benefiting from that same ecosystem that 
you collectively and individually create. And the one brother that sort of doesn't do finance is in interior design. Yeah, which is kind of funny. And crushing. (laughs) Which is kind of funny. He was, you know, uh, he was an athlete. He was he went to finance originally and he was like, I just don't really like the widget, you know, and, but you know, it's one place you could kind of make money. We had no money. He was, he was hustling and uh, he started building, you know, bought a house and fixed it up and started doing that as a uh, kind of a hobby first started making money. And then as a business, and then after the, the 08 crash, he said, geez, how am I going to make money when the real estate market's not going up? And so he, decided to create a TV show and kind of put his family on TV and created a, a brand and now sells things at Amazon and Walmart and, you know, has, has this home furnishings and furniture. And, and so he's done well, uh, spectacularly well. As a matter of fact, sometimes I think he's got the best gig because, you know, my sister was a great student and I was a really good student in school and, and he was less of a good student. And so, you know, there were no real expectations for him. And, <laughs> and I was like, dude, we had all these expectations. You did. Is he, is he younger? He's 18 months older, though he, he likes to think he looks younger. <laughs> and you didn't grow up with a silver spoon in your mouth? No. You know, my dad was an army officer. We grew up, uh, my mother used to say, oh, you, had, you were given so much. And I look back, I'm like, what do you mean? We had one bathroom and one brush at our house. I still don't understand for why seven we, for seven of us. Why we only had one brush, and I had great hair, and so you had to wait to get the brush with the blow dryer back then. You know, you had a feathered hair, and it was a it was a big deal. <laughs> and um, you wrestled, and you went to Princeton, and you were a helicopter pilot after college. I was. How did that? I mean, that was just you know what I I grew up in Alexandria, outside of uh, D.C. A lot of. Uh, kids in my school were, were sons and daughters of military people or, or government workers. Uh, we were kind of a middle-class school that really punched above our weight. We, there was an aspirational DNA in the neighborhood. And one way to get to college was an ROTC scholarship, because back then, the great universities didn't have near the financial aid they do today. Uh, and so in order to get to Princeton, the only way I was going to get there was an ROTC scholarship. Uh, and so I took one, not really understanding what it meant to join the Army. And I remember my senior year when I'm getting inducted and you're raising your right hand and you just swear to defend the constitution, like what the hell I'm actually joining the army. (laughs) It had been a financing thing until then. Um, But I tell you that my military service, I wouldn't trade it for anything because you get an amazing look at kind of the cross section of America. Uh, In some ways we really should have a compulsory service. It breaks down racial barriers. It breaks down, you know, geographic barriers. You're, with some guy from Moline, Illinois, or from Upatoy, Georgia. Uh, and you're all basically in the same camp. You know, you shaved heads, crappy, crappy food, uh, ugly clothes, and uh, hard days. What taught you more, wrestling or the Army? Wrestling. You know, wrestling is, wrestling is a brutal sport. You know, it, it, the amount of work you need to put in to be good at it, uh, the pain you have to kind of suffer through. Uh, I remember literally like yesterday the matches I've lost. Uh, and they drive me. You know, like I think my success as a philanthropist, my success as a businessman, are in large part due to these son of a bitches named Bob Hill and Tony Panza. Uh, Tony Panza beat me in the state championships in Virginia in the finals with 10 seconds left. Uh, I'm still angry about that. Uh, you know, Bobby Hill beat me in front of my entire family in the Eastern finals uh, at Princeton. Um, and so I do think there's something when you work that hard and you get smashed or you, you come up at... It's a sport that's entirely based around suffering. Yes. It's a, not eating, 
They can wait. <laughs> yes, it's, and then I was trying to get my son to do it. My youngest son, he's like, Dad, why would I do it? It's, it's, it's no fun. It's too hard. <laughs> and I was like, that's why you're supposed to do it. He said, Dad, that makes no sense. <laughs> what is it? I mean, this is a recurring theme that I feel like we talk about is suffering. Why do you think that the suffering and wrestling is so important to not just the sport, but like what you've learned? You know, I think being able to understand that pain is temporary um, and not to turn pain into suffering, right? We say, we call it suffering, but it's really pain, right? Suffering is the story about pain. Think about it like a little kid. You've got little Hugo, you're going to have to give him a shot when he's three years old and he's going to have one shot. It's going to hurt a little. The next time you're going to give him a shot, he's going to be screaming and crying before he gets the shot. So he's actually suffering about the story of the shot, not the shot itself. The shot doesn't really hurt that much. And I think wrestling can help teach you. It's just pain. Dude, you're going to be fine. Uh, and you're going to go through it and you're going to be fine the next day. Uh, you're actually be better off for it. And so it toughens you up in a lot of ways. You're not, you're less scared. It's interesting. 14 of the 44 presidents of the United States were wrestlers. Uh, there's no other sport that has that much. I've never won a wrestling match. I lost everyone. My, <laughs> my high school career. I'm not even kidding you. I've never won a wrestling match. Um, but how does that make you, do you think that's given you an edge as a trader? I think it gives you an edge as a leader and somewhat as a trader too, because you're trying to, well, we have a charity called Beat the Streets that we started and, and I put a lot of thought into the philosophy behind it and it was toughness. And it wasn't toughness like in a bravado sense. It was like a, it was like a toughness forged in like the, like the United States Marines or the Spartans in you know, ancient Greece. Uh, and when you're tough, you're, you lean on your front foot, you're not scared. And so your trading is scary, right? It's all about fear and, 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 and greed in lots of ways. And, and how do you overcome your fear? You're like, you kind of lean in. Or quite frankly, you're walking down the street and some guy gives you a dirty look. You can get scared and walk to the other side of the street or you can kind of look right back at him. I'm like, eh. And so toughness often translates into leadership, right? People want to follow someone who's not scared. I was having a conversation with Jeff, uh, our friend, uh, that introduced me to you years ago. And I said, what makes Mike such a great trader? And Jeff's like, because he has a short-term memory. And I was like, I don't know if I agree with that because you just remembered your losses in wrestling. Like it was like yeah. yesterday. So it's not like you don't remember. So one of the things that I see with cooks and just sort of people that are struggling to start their own business or creative endeavor is when they fail or fail multiple times, it just becomes like – such a horrible event that they never want to experience anything remotely close to it ever again. Yet, I've known you long enough where you've experienced some pretty bad losses. And it's not like you yeah. don't remember it, but you also don't remember it. It's weird. Yeah. How do you describe that? I, you know, it's interesting. You know, I remember when I left Goldman Sachs, it was a kind of really a shitty way to leave. And I was on the rise. I was the rising star at that place. And I was full of myself and doing great. And next thing you know, I was unemployed. And I was... You know, I was depressed. I was, I was having a hard time getting out of bed and like, oh, I've ruined my life and want whinging a little bit. And it was interesting. I had a lot of family around and support. But what it took for me to kind of change my narrative in my head, I went out and I ran the Marathon of the Sands in the Sahara. It's literally six marathons in a row. You, you run six marathons in six days across the Sahara with a 700 other lunatics. Um, it got to 135 degrees during the day and you froze your nuts off at night. And I remember being out there in the middle of this gorgeous desert. And I was like, God, it's good to be alive. What the 
F were you whining about? And so it was the physicality of that race that literally shifted my, my psyche, you know, shifted my state. Um, most people getting fired from Goldman because you like you were like the youngest partner, right? One of I wasn't the youngest, but I was a young partner, and I was on a fast tear. Uh, you know, they had promoted me to be the president of Goldman Latin America, so I was one of the only young guys that were running a region. And yeah, I had a good, I had a great career. I loved, I loved the place too. So it was painful, like leaving. It's a big family. It's a cult. Goldman's a great cult, and you know, I was part of the cult. And then you got thrown out of the cult. It, it, it's painful. And what makes a great trader? What makes a great speculator is having that, the right intuition, having the algorithm that's right, but then it's competitiveness and, 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 and discipline. And I tell you what, I think I'm a really good trader. Uh, I know greats, Stan Druckenmiller, Lewis Bacon, Paul Jones. I call them A pluses. And I've, I've kind of got to the A minus level. And it's not because I don't see the world as well or better than them. They're just more competitive and, and, and a little more disciplined. And I sometimes well, that's just who I am. I have more interest. I do a lot of different things. But they but literally— what, what does discipline have to do with it? So when you're making a, a bet, if I say today, David, I think Bitcoin's going from 8400 to 20000 and these are the four reasons. I don't know it's going there. I'm guessing. And so I think it's an educated guess. But the only way you can not fall victim to great anxiety— so I say that, and all of a sudden— it drops to 7,900. <gasps> well, maybe I got it wrong. So you live in constant state of anxiety and fear. Uh, that sounds terrible. It's a, it's a, trading is a miserable job in lots of ways. It's a lonely and tough job being a speculator. So the only way you deal with that anxiety is create a system of rules that you manage your risk by and you manage your life by to lower it. So if I say, David, I think Bitcoin's going from 8,200 to 20,000. But if it goes below 7,800, I quit. Well, now I know I've only risked 400, 400 bucks to make a lot. And so if I lose it, I lose it. So I put a stop loss in. That takes the stress away. And so there are all kinds of techniques to take the stress away, the anxiety away. Um, most people who are even good at understanding markets never make money because they get too scared or they get too excited. What are the two things? And so you almost have to be detached a little bit and have a tremendous amount of discipline. Hey, if this gets to 20,000, I'm selling it. What happens when it gets to 20,000? It feels like it's going to go to 50,000. I'm not selling it now. Well, three weeks ago, I said, if it got to 20,000, I'm selling it. What changed? Well, the only thing that changed is price and how excited I am. And so the discipline to sell, like what, what I'm proud of in the cryptocurrency boom wasn't that we bought it. It was that we sold it. Most people couldn't sell it because it was like a religion and it was going up every day and it was making you rich and it felt so good. It's a dopamine rush that you can't explain. And, but you got to sell every once in a while. And so it's that discipline and that's kind of understanding of markets that separates kind of good from great. And Is that kind of discipline something that every kind of job should encourage? I think – yeah, in a lot of ways, if you think about even great spiritual people, there's a practice they go through, right? You know, the great meditators, they meditate. The, you know, they, the people that are most holistically, you know, there have a practice. It just doesn't randomly happen. Read about what the Dalai Lama does on a daily basis to become the Dalai Lama. I'm sure great chefs have a process they go through. I shouldn't say I'm sure because the last time I cooked was, I think, 1988. I made some uh, chicken and rice with onions 
uh, when I was at flight school. Um, I, I, I've been a great advocate of eating out since. <laughs> You're a patron of uh, New York City restaurants. I am. I'm a big foodie. Um, yeah, this discipline thing, I have not quite understood it. I've seen you not have discipline at the gambling table, though. No. No, but but I asked you. I was like, Mike, like, how come you're such a crazy person on the table? He's like, I take enough chance. Like, I'm. What did you say? I gamble in real life. Yes. I don't need to gamble. Here. Yeah, uh, this is for fun. This, that was entertainment. Yeah, that was entertainment. I feel like <laughs> I, I owe it to my my friends around me to put on a show. Gambling with Mike Novogratz is one of the great joys because it's just I don't know how to describe it. It's just pure fun. You have more fun doing it than I think anybody I've ever met. <laughs> <laughs> um, then you started Fortress with Pete. Uh, well, you know, Wes Edens had started Fortress before us. It was a small company. Oh, okay. 30, I didn't know this. Yeah, it was 35 people. Uh, Wes was a wildly successful guy, both at Lehman Brothers and then at BlackRock. And he started. I thought all you guys worked at Goldman together. No, so Wes knew Pete. When Pete was at Goldman and Wes was at Lehman, they knew each other because they were in the same space. And Wes first offered us free office space. Pete and I took it. And then we literally wrote the business plan of Fortress on a napkin, uh, which was one plus one plus one equals 10. Uh, it was a great business plan that if we could combine three disparate businesses that were all in the financial services industry. And what are those three businesses? Wes was a private equity business uh, where you... So explain private equity. It's something restaurant people hear a lot more these right. days. Right. So private equity is where you take private money. So not, not public money. Public money would be stock market money. Private money. And you buy companies. You buy companies like Momofuku or you buy companies like, you know, the cell, biggest cell tower company in America. And you run them and you make them more efficient. You put the right management team in. And over time, you either sell them back to the public or you sell them to somebody else. And so it's using private capital to own businesses. That's been the most biggest booming business over the last 25 years. So f funds like Blackstone and Carlisle now manage hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, and that's what Wes And that's on. what Wes did. Pete is what you call a distressed debt investor. And so I used to call him a, a really handsome loan shark. Uh, you know, you're, when people need, need money, Pete will lend you money against your assets. Now, if you're a really good creditor, you're going to the bank. And so he's lending money to people that aren't such good creditors. And Pete was probably the best there is at. He used to tell people he was a high-paid garbage man. You know, like he would go through and and when things blow up, people just want out of them. And they often sell things at, at really low prices because they need the money. And so Pete has patient capital, so he'll buy it and hold it for a long time. So he's built a great business. And I ran this hedge fund business, this speculative business, macro, where we bet on trends in, in currencies and in interest rates, which is really this cross between politics and policy and economics. And so for me, I always told people, whatever business you want to be in, you got to love the widget. You can't be in the food business if you don't love food. You can't be a car salesman if you don't like cars. And so you can't be a Wall Street guy if you don't love politics, policy, and markets. And so I, you know, in my second life, I'm a policy wonk. I've always been. And Fortress did extremely well. We had a really unique start. All three of us built great businesses kind of randomly at the same time. And our idea of one plus one plus one equals 10 came to fruition. We, we took the company public. We were the first hedge fund private equity company ever to go public. When we went public, you know, partly because Wes is one of the best salesmen you'll meet. 
Pete is a really unique salesman because he gives you the anti-sales sales, then you want to buy more. It's like, nothing's going to work. And everyone thinks he's lying to them. And so they want to give them more money. And, and I'm a sales guy. And so when we went out to sell the IPO, we were 38 times oversubscribed. You know, our company, which had literally gotten started five years earlier, was valued at $15 billion. We were the only company ever where five guys became a billionaire in a day. And so for this glorious, I don't know if it was 12 months, we were really riding on, you know, on sun, in sunshine. And, you know, then we ran right into the teeth of 2008, the financial crises. Uh, we weren't prepared for it in some ways. You know, the becoming that rich that quick, there was all kinds of stuff you're trying to digest to people calling you up. You start believing your own, you know, your own press a little bit. Uh, and we'd grow the business really, really fast. And, you know, a series of unfortunate events, Lemony Snicket, and really a horrific market uh, humbled us. Uh, what so, is it about this? Is this part of the discipline that you are saying other traders and other people that are great at the professions, like when they when it's really good, they still are focused on like Bill Belichick, I always imagine, someone that's not really enjoying it because they want to win? Yeah. Listen, when I look back on it, what we could have done different, plenty. We could have been a little more conservative. We could have slowed the growth of our company down. We didn't really have anyone to run the company. We had three great businesses, but no one really running the company. So, you know, we had, uh, I think the restaurant industry is in a scary place. You know, I'm always doom and gloom. And, you know, we are expanding. And I think there's things that are changing at such a rapid pace that it's hard for anyone to really predict what the future is going to be because nothing in the past is like makes sense anymore to what we're doing now or so hard to predict the future in food. And I feel more than ever with all the success we have, it's all going to, it could go away tomorrow like that. It's a terrible feeling. I thought it was just me, but I now see other people in my company feeling the same way. And I'm like, this can't be healthy. And how, I mean, I'm talking to you because you've been in the hole so many different ways. What's the best advice you have for someone to get out of that fucking hole? Well, it's to realize that your external life, how your company's doing, how your P&L is doing, doesn't necessarily have to affect, affect your internal life, right? How you feel about yourself. Like, if you just deal with your reality, your reality is, okay, we were in the pork business and swine flu happened and it destroyed all our pigs. And so shit, we're losing all our money. Like that's a reality. You've got to make decisions based on that reality. It shouldn't necessarily figure out how you feel about David Chang or how you feel about yourself. And, and separating those two things and doing the work to have a, a good internal compass, wife that loves you, someone you love, you know, your kids, prioritizing and realizing the rest of the stuff is my external life and it's a job and I'm doing the best I can and I'm about people depending on me. I'm, I'm going to do the best I can at it, but it doesn't mean I'm better or worse. That's, I mean, it sounds easy. It's really hard to do, but the people that are happiest and the people that are most successful are able to do that. Hey, it was a bet. We made a bet. We thought it was right. We put our heart into it. It was wrong. And what do most people do when they get that work-life thing understood and they're in a situation that is pretty dire and it almost seems impossible? Why you know, do most people? The first thing they come religious. Dear God, please, please. I know. I, I know. I haven't been to church in twenty seconds. But please, if you just let me out of this one. I mean, I always say it's like being in the weeds. Like when you're cooking on the line and you're in the weeds and you're behind tickets, it feels like you're drowning. And the thing that most people do right off the bat is they move faster and more disorganized. When the really, really good cooks, 
the veterans, they slow down. They, they move, intentionally move slower. And it's so contrary to what you should be doing. And then they move faster and faster and faster. Is that what you should be doing in general when you know, you're in the hole? I, I was at the, uh, oh God, I can't remember the name of the sushi restaurant, the Okura Hotel in Tokyo. Famous, famous sushi restaurant. And it was in the basement of the old Okura that they've moved it. And there was an earthquake. And the three sushi chefs, they stepped back from the thing, hands folded, just that stone face, waited till the earthquake finished, stepped back up and started cutting the sushi again. I was like, I'm not worthy. It was the coolest thing I've ever seen of just like, take a breather, assess the situation, go back. Yeah, you're supposed to breathe, try to understand the big picture. You know, is digging going to help or not? Come up with a game plan and then execute. And for all that I know of you and all the work that you put in and the training and just the discipline, I still feel that there's something that you say and I hear, I see some of our my other friends say too. It's like, or a trait. It's almost like, all right, I'm going to do this work, but I'm going to will it to work too. Somehow it's going to work out. You're so optimistic like that. It's I, insane. I, I'm an optimist. I am an optimist. Um, and sometimes it gets me in trouble. And I think good energy, like life is about energy and good energy, you know, follows good energy. And uh, when I'm staring at a screen, I used to like, you, you can look at this guy right here, the Chinese guy. Uh, he's staring at that screen, not doing anything. He's just staring at that screen. I used to go out and say, dude, no matter how hard you stare at the screen, it's not going to move the price. You know, you don't have that kind of magical powers. And so do something productive. If you're worried about the position, make a few calls to understand what else is happening. If you're really worried about it, put a stop loss and let it go. And so understanding what is productive and what's not productive is also important. You can will an organization. You can will yourself to work harder to get to the right place. But that's not like magic. That's making decisions, pointing yourself in the right direction, pivoting, moving, going, and executing. And so there's got to be a take a breath, make a decision, and then execute. And that often feels like it's intuition. And some of it is, you know, you're just, you happens naturally. But if you really broke it down, it's taking a breath, assessing the situation. Hey, did we make the wrong bet? And having the courage, if you made the wrong bet, to say, let's just shut this whole thing down. We open a restaurant where no one wants to eat our food. So we either need to change the food or shut the thing down. That's not the end of the world. Well, that's something I, I've observed that you do really well is you're constantly like analyzing data and not afraid to change your decision based on changing data. Why do people get so pot committed to something like there? It's like they, it doesn't make any sense. Hey, we put all this time into this. Like we've done it with a restaurant. You sign the lease and then three years later you open it up and everything's changed. But you're like, you knew it was going to happen, but you still don't change anything. You, do you see that? I see, I see it a ton. Listen, people have, a, it's, and people do it with their personal life. We, we are a, a series of identities, right? And these identities are really powerful and they're hard to shape. You're the first son. You've got, got, got to be good to your parents. You're the, you're the, the funny one. You're the, and so how do you shape that identity if you don't want to be that guy anymore? It's really hard. It's like a death almost, letting those identities go. And so same thing with our businesses. This is what we're supposed to be. Well, who said? Why? And so people get so stuck in their identity. And the identity is just a story. It's not real. And so if you can understand that everything is about a story and they're just stories, that really they're not your real essence, your energy is your essence, your, uh, 
That's hard to do. That's the, 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 that's where the spiritual work collides with the business work. But those are the guys that do the best. Uh, and you're one of them. You've been able to shape your identity and grow, and you always somehow skate to where the puck's going to be, right? And that led to Bitcoin for you. Yeah. How? First of all, I still don't understand what Bitcoin is, and and I have a lot more questions about that. But how did this whole? How did you become Mister Bitcoin? You know, it, it was kind of a series of random events. Pete Brigger, who I talked about, right, who was my partner, who would be the last guy in the world you'd think would be like on the cutting edge of tech and Bitcoin, but he had moved his business to San Francisco. One of his friends in San Francisco, Wences Caceres, who's a wonderfully charismatic guy, he, he had told Pete about Bitcoin. So Pete called me as his partner who is on the speculative side. I literally spent 20 minutes on Google and I was like, dude, this is going to work. And so I said, let's buy some. And what year is that? This is 2013, 14. Bitcoin was about 90. Then I had another friend another classmate who had been a hedge fund manager who had, his hedge fund had screwed up. And so he was sitting on the sideline doing nothing, but he was a brilliant guy. So I called him. I said, hey, look into this thing, Bitcoin. I don't have enough time. Two weeks later, he called me back. He's like, it's going to change the whole world. And he put a lot of money into it. And we were a lot richer than he was. So we had to put at least as much as he did. Otherwise, we'd feel dumb. And so I, I always have to thank Dan Moorhead because if he hadn't had as much courage to put it in, I would have put it in a smaller amount. So me, Pete, and him all put the same amount in. And, uh, you know, it went up from 90 to 1,000 and then went back down. And then it went all the way up to 20,000. And so I got more known for it almost by circumstance or accident. At Fortress, we decided, you know, we're a real assets place. We're not going to associate our brand with crypto. And that's why we made this deal with Dan Morad. He, he kind of resurrect his brand and we'd be investors in it. And I was at a conference on a panel. It was a boring panel. And someone asked me a question about frontier currencies. And instead of talking about these emerging market currencies, I said, ah, you want a frontier currency? That... And I talked about Bitcoin. I gave the four reasons why it would go to 1,000. It was about 200 at the time. I didn't realize the press was there. And the next day, I was on the cover of the FT. Uh, only time I was on the cover of the FT. Fortress is overgrad says Bitcoin going to 1,000. And luckily, it went to 1,000. And because I was the first kind of established hedge fund manager to talk about it, I got invited to speak at the Oxford Union. I got at CNBC and Bloomberg, and I became kind of the talking head about crypto, uh, which was fun. What? You really studied crypto. Like you were even studying like World of Warcraft. I was like, no, what are you doing? What the hell is cryptocurrency? Well, it was fear that made me study it, right? So like you get invited to the Oxford Union, you're like, okay, all these smart kids are going to ask me something I don't know. And I barely know how the damn thing worked. And so I like scrambling to like understand, you know, how Bitcoin worked, the philosophy. And, and one thing I've learned in life, you start making money in something and it becomes much more interesting to you. <laughs> and so you're digging in more. And, and I was also lucky. He talked about luck. I've always been lucky. You know, Joe Lubin, who was one of the three or four guys that were around the Ethereum project was also a college roommate. And, you know, when I was talking about Bitcoin, he had emailed me. He's like, dude, I didn't know you were into crypto and, and we got this new project. And so I, I'd gone over to visit him in Brooklyn once and thinking, let me hear about what you're doing. And I thought there'd be two people and there were like 20 people and they were plotting this revolution, how they were going to, you know, change the world. And I was like, I got to get some of this. And so I really made more money on Ethereum than Bitcoin. I bought it. It was one and it went all the way to 1300. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. 
hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Alturo COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants, as we all do in the hospitality industry. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at this web address, ziprecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ziprecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G, ziprecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And now back to the show. Now, explain what is cryptocurrency. Sure. So, why does it have value and what is blockchain? So, the, the basic premise uh, that started with Bitcoin was that we had always had a, a system where trust was centralized. So, in God we trust, the government is going to write your money, or JP Morgan is going to, or Harvard's going to write your report cards. And that because of 2008, people were really losing faith in these organizations. Do you trust Donald Trump with your DNA data? Uh, do you trust the Chinese government with all your spending data? Uh, they can change the rules overnight. They just, the Chinese, you know, one of the, one of these video gaming companies, uh, Blizzard just took $500,000 away from some guy and threw him out of the game because he had, he had supported the Hong Kong protests. And so this guy, Satoshi Nakamoto, or this woman, I actually think Satoshi was a woman, but who knows, wrote this white paper to say, Hey, there's a different way we can do things. We can distribute trust. We can create this ledger where we all get to see it and no, no, not one person gets it and it's encrypted. And so he solved some pretty cool computer science problems and some pretty cool economic problems. And Bitcoin was really the, the first decentralized money. So it's a store of value that no one is in control of. The government can't shut it down because they don't own it. Now they can make it more difficult to try to participate in. And that's kind of cool. It's the first time we've had sovereignty without a sovereign. Like Bitcoin is sovereign, right? Everything else, the government is sovereign. You know, you're, you're in China, you are under the watchful eye of the big guy. Uh, but Bitcoin, it's sovereign and it's pseudonymous. And so that was really cool. And then people said, well, geez, we can take that a step further. So Ethereum was going to be the better version of Bitcoin because it was going to allow for everything, these smart contracts. So you could put almost anything on these blockchains. All a blockchain is is a database. It's in essence a it's a decentralized database. And so people had all these grand ideas from providence of products. What do you mean by a database? Like, I still don't, what, cryptocurrency or block, well, blockchain. So blockchain, blockchain is a database, right? Microsoft Excel is a database, right? And so a blockchain is a database. It's just a database that's not controlled by one person. And so when you think about something like where your shrimp come from, mm you can actually now track the provenance of those shrimp on these blockchains. So you have to get all the people that are in that ecosystem to participate. Uh, you could have a private blockchain that does supply chain. 
And so you're seeing all these ecosystems sprouting up because they give you trust. Hey, I now trust that this. So it's about transparency. Basically. It's, it's about transparency. Uh, it's exactly what it's about. And so what was unique is we had this bubble because these are big ideas, right? Decentralized money is a big idea. Transparency is a big idea. Uh, privacy is a big idea. The democratization of finance is a big idea. And they all got whooped up into this. This is going to change the world. It is going to change the world. It's going to change the world in 5, 10, 15, 20 years' times. But all great bubbles happen around ideas that change the world. And so this big idea got people excited. And it was retail that got excited. It was the Koreans and the Chinese and the Japanese and the Indians and the Americans. It was the first global spec of the bubble. And prices went crazy to, to stupid, stupid levels. But why are people valuing something that's literally nothing? Because it was a spec of the bubble. It was a completely speculative bubble. And so why it all crashed is everyone's the next Bitcoin. Well, you, what was unique about Bitcoin is scarcity value. There are only 21 million Bitcoins. Well, when everyone says, well, mine's a Bitcoin, mine's a Bitcoin, then there was 21 billion Bitcoins and the price collapsed. Regulators were way behind. Regulators are supposed to protect the little guy. And they did a terrible job. They get an F. Uh, and they were embarrassed. And so then they said, okay, now we've got to regulate. And so they've been backfilling and trying to come up with regulations. And where we're left with is Bitcoin has kind of survived as a digital gold. It's not a money. You're not using it to buy Momofuku uh, or jackets or glasses, but people are using it as a hard store of value. And in places like, you know, Venezuela or Zimbabwe or where there's less trust in the local currency and government, it's, it's more used. But it's kind of won a lane as gold. Gold's $8 trillion or $9 trillion. Here's a crazy stat about gold. You can take all the gold that's ever been mined in the history of the world from 5,000 B.C. till now, melt it all down, and it fits in a 25-meter cube that you could put in the middle of Central Park as a sculpture. That's a $9 trillion sculpture. It makes no freaking sense. Why is gold worth $9 trillion? So this is arbitrary as something that's a blockchain. Thing. As Bitcoin. Can you explain to me the World of Warcraft stuff? Because I don't, like, that was like, I was like, remember that? You were talking about swords on World of Warcraft? So the number one game in America right now is a game called Fortnite. So if Hugo was 14 years old, he would have a headset on. He'd have have four friends, and they'd be, like, all playing this, you know, this team team game against other. It's like a battle royale, a violent, you know, video game that has taken the world by storm. It does about 150 to 200 million dollars a month in revenue. That revenue is people buying game accessories, not to make their player better, but to make their player look better. I think for, from time immemorial, we have worn wigs, diamonds, fancy clothes, Gucci, Prada. My wife spends an hour in the you know the closet before she in the bathroom before she goes out, putting her makeup and figuring out what dresses to wear and. Uh, you like you like nice clothes too, Mike. <laughs> I, I, I've got quite a jacket collection, right? We're, we show off, and so in a digital world, people want their avatars to look good, and so that 150 million dollars is spent on, if you want to think about it, digital clothing. Now, right now, those are closed ecosystems. So if Fortnite goes away, all those game parts that your kids have bought and go to zero. In the future, you're going to see blockchain enabled. I'll be able to take my jacket or my sword or my cool 17-round auto blaster I, I, did, I bought and move it from one game to the next. I'll be able to hang it in my digital garage, my man cave, my digital man cave. And 
it sounds crazy at the, other than if you look at the how big that digital economy already is. You know, the gaming business is bigger than Hollywood. It's it's bigger than porn, for God's sakes. <laughs> you know? And how does that change everything? Like, I mean... Well, so if you think about big picture, we are in a world where things are being automatized faster and faster. We talked about this, the restaurant business, you know, like in the fast food business, are we going to literally have three employees instead of 30? Because you're going to have robots flipping burgers and frying chicken and everything else. And so in a world where jobs are going to go away, there's a real strong argument. You know, my brother-in-law, Chris Anderson from TED, he thinks you could have literally in 30 years, 30, 40, 50% of the workforce working in virtual jobs. Hmm. And so virtual jobs are half play and half real. So you could be a virtual bartenders in a cool Shanghai restaurant flirting with, you know, your avatar and working for tips. And this, those could be real tips. I can make my living being a virtual bartenders. And you're like, what? That's the future that's heading at us in a fast, fast and furious way. And there are already big economies. So it's not, this is not all fiction. You can already see Second Life was this game that Craig created 20 years ago. And they have a $500 million a year ecosystem on really old technology. Still? Still. Now, how does Bitcoin fuel any of this? You know, Bitcoin right now is a global store of wealth. It's a global gold. And so it might or might not be the currency that you use in those games. Probably won't be. Uh, but another digital currency will be. Facebook's trying to come out with this thing called Libra. Will that kill Bitcoin? No, it won't kill Bitcoin. It will actually accelerate how fast cryptocurrencies are adopted. But Bitcoin, I think, will still be this. Just like the dollar didn't kill gold, I don't think crypto currency that actually gets used as a payment currency will kill Bitcoin. So when in the future, or should I say, is a future for retail and commerce and say restaurants, will that transaction be Bitcoin or will it ever replace the credit card, which eventually replaced cash? So, so in China, 95% of transactions happen on your phone. They don't have cash. 95%. You take your phone, you swipe it across. It's all on WeChat or Weibo, or, or B2B stuff is on Alipay. Commerce is on Alipay. Right now, we're about 5%. Why? We, we had credit cards. We all use credit cards, and they kind of skip credit cards. We will move more and more towards digital payments. Most likely, those will end up being some form of a cryptocurrency. I don't know if Libra is going to get through. The one, you know, the, the issue with Libra was it's a wonderfully designed project, Facebook isn't really well liked by either the Republicans or the Democrats right now. So they've got to kind of, and Facebook only owns one one hundredth of Libra. It's a distributed ownership model, but they're so associated with it. We'll see if it gets through, but there will be something that gets through, right? Telegram is coming out with their cryptocurrency by the end of this month. They have 300 million users. And so it will shock me that if in 10 years time, we are not mostly spending money via our phones via crypto. So you're going to accept cryptocurrency at Momofuku within five or 10 years. That's a reality. So that's, that's something restaurants have to be ready yes. for. Yes. Starbucks is already preparing for it, right? With the New York Stock Exchange product. You know, they're a partner of BACT, which is the New York Stock Exchange uh, cryptocurrency exchange. So how that, how's that going to happen? Is it is it going to be just like iPay or Apple Pay or something yeah. on your phone? You know, and you'll be able to pay in dollars or Bitcoin or Facebook coin. And is there going to be a the centralized mer- currency? The merchants are going to be, merchants will be indifferent, right? Huh. You're going to be indifferent. If I, if I could pay you in pounds, but instantly you got your dollars, you wouldn't care. 
So the technology is going to make the transaction seamless. You're not yes. going to know the difference. That's what's happening. Huh. Well, all right. Restaurants, I guess we're going to have to get ready for cryptocurrency. Why, why does cryptocurrency have such a bad – why is it hated so much by so many different people? Well, listen, the, on the way up, it was a bubble. And so some people made a whole lot of money and a lot of people lost a whole lot of money. So when you lose a whole lot of money in something, you tend to not like it. The people that weren't participating and it kept going up, they wanted to hate it because they weren't participating. And I think people broadly didn't understand. Now, was it healthy that we had a speculative bubble? You know, yes and no. What's healthy is it draws lots of human capital and capital into the space that needs capital. What's unhealthy is it creates this, oh my God, this is trading, you know, uh, tulips, uh, the tulip. Can you explain the tulip, the Dutch tulip thing? Yeah, that, that was one of the only cases you can see of a, a speculative mania that didn't really lead to substantial change, right? Most bubbles, like the internet bubble, I mean, in 1999, the internet went crazy. We didn't really have any real fruit from the internet. You know, Facebook launched in, what, 2006. The iPhone was 2007 for seven or eight years after that. But in 99... You had the internet bubble. Like bubbles happen in advance. Tulips was weird because it was a bubble uh, that didn't really then have have a lasting impact. Value is a perception. I mean, someone spent $375 million on a freaking painting. Like you could build a town, not just a hospital, a school, a hospital, houses for $375 million. Or you can have a painting. Like what the hell? So it's scarcity and value. So value is all perception. What will the next guy pay? And so people got angry at crypto because they're like, oh, this shit's not worth anything. And they were right. Most of it isn't going to be worth anything. Is it the same hatred that people feel for, you know, the Occupy Wall Street or why people in finance and trading tend to get a lot of criticism from everywhere other part of culture? I don't think so. I think, quite frankly, the the core tenets of the crypto revolution are very democratic, there, let's let's remake the world something fairer. Let's try to get our privacy back, right? So we're giving away our privacy at an alarming rate, right? If you did twenty three and me, you lick the little stick to figure out that you were not really fully Korean, but you're only I'm not. I, I'm a one percent Ashkenazi Jew. There you go. Yeah. But you're part Jewish, yes. and, and you're working on Yom. You're working on Yom <laughs> yeah. Kippur. Damn it. <laughs> um, we now gave, you know, Esther Wojcicki, I think that's her name, all our DNA. That's crazy. She's got the blueprint to you and me. There's so much value in that DNA. Now, she seems to be a very nice lady and thinks she'll be responsible with it, but she can get hacked. Like that never, ever, ever should have gone into a, a, a database that someone controlled. That should have been into an encrypted database that was distributed, that was blockchain-based. And so public goods the same way. We, look, we have Twitter. We have Twitter where Jack Dorsey has got this unbelievable power to say, well, who do I censor and who do I not censor? Who should I kick off and who shouldn't I kick off? Twitter's a public good now. It really is, right? Our president communicates. We all communicate on Twitter. So in a perfect world, in my perfect world, Twitter would be running on what I call Web 3.0 in a decentralized system. And there'd be governance around. If you're going to change the rules, there'd be two-thirds vote or some governance mechanism. But things that are public goods shouldn't be controlled by one person or one group of people. Um, and we, we see, we have, we have good government. You trust your government, and then all of a sudden you're like, what the hell? And that's what's happened in China recently. People kind of were trusting China, trusting China, and all of a sudden you got, you know, Xi says, you know, I want to be emperor for life. Well, I don't trust him as much anymore. And so all of a sudden, 
not just in China, in the U.S., you know, half the people I know don't trust Donald Trump at all, you know. And so to have systems that we don't need to rely on one person is kind of what the the spirit of the uh, the blockchain revolution is. And I think most people kind of agree with it once they understand it. I remember hearing a conversation we were having over dinner once. And I always remember these conversations. It's not like I eat with you all the time. I just remember them because they're always memorable. And it was surprising for you to talk about, you know, justifying why wealthy people are despised so much in today's society because capitalism failed. Do you yeah. still feel that way? I do. I do. Listen, 60% of America has less than $5,000 in savings. Um, I run a bail project and we bail people out. And I, when I first got to them, I was like, these are $700. I couldn't call a brother a friend. No. In most communities of where people are getting arrested, they have no phone a friend for $700. And so when we have, listen, it's, it's one thing if 15% of your population is living under stress, like that's probably normal. But when it's 50% having no savings, you're doing something wrong. Um, in 1975, around the time of Milton Friedman, right, the return on equity for the, the S&P was something like 5 or 6%, and now it's 6 or 7% higher. That 6 or 7% got taken from labor and went to, to capital. Where is fair in there? I don't know, but it's not where we are today. And so I mean, there was a stat recently in the last 20 years, the top 1% has increased their wealth by $21 trillion, and the bottom 50% has seen their wealth decrease by 900 billion dollars. So I'll call it a trillion. So those things, when you just look at the macro, they don't make any sense. And when we have such disparity of wealth, A, there's a psychic dissonance it creates, but it crowds out, it crowds out all kinds of good things. It crowds out, listen, I was a middle-class kid who now a rich guy, right? That idea of social mobility gets crowded out when the schools all suck because we still pay property taxes, fuel, Education spending. That's the stupidest thing I've ever, ever heard. I, I, when I learned that when I was eight years old, I thought it was stupid. That's when I was a middle class and I thought I was getting screwed. And I was like, ah, oh, we need more money in our school system. Those rich kids are getting it all. Uh, it's crazy the way we do it. And so now as you have that skew wider and wider, the, the educational disparity gets wider and wider. And so we have social mobility at its lowest level in 100 years in America. That's crazy. Right? The whole American dream was my kid has a better life than I have. Right now, only 25% of kids think they're going to have a better life than their parents. That's the lowest it's ever been in America. You know what that is in Vietnam? 96%. Mm. So Vietnam's got the American dream going on, and we've got, oh, shit. This is my favorite version of Mike, and it's a version that I don't know if people know too much about because they're like, oh, this is the hedge fund guy. He's the Bitcoin guy. But the moment in your life right now that I think you get the most joy out of is literally civic good and duty. And my favorite version of Mike Novogratz is agent of change. And no more than like, and, and in so many different ways. Can you talk about your, the whole uh, bail project that you've been associated now with um, the whole group behind Meek Mill yeah. and the problem behind that and why it doesn't get enough Recognition. So we have a criminal justice system that, if you was, we were grading, it would get an F, not a C or a D and F. Uh, it is unjust. It is stupid. It is a waste of money. Um, and so I, in some ways, stumbled into uh, the bail project. And my daughter got a got an internship at uh, the Bronx Defenders, and she was coming home and telling me these stories of she was literally 
working for these lawyers, these public defenders, and would traipse around the Bronx and go to the 7-Eleven or the bodega and, you know, take evidences, statements. And I was like, you're 19 years old. <laughs> and she was like the assistant, you know, to the attorney uh, working on these cases. And that was the defense these guys were getting. And so the woman that ran that, a woman named Robin Steinberg, had had left and wanted to start a bail project. And she literally had me at hello almost. I mean, the pitch is really simple. Tonight, 500,000 people will go to bed in a jail cell, a stinky, dangerous, smelling jail cell, solely because they don't have the money to pay bail. They've been arrested but not convicted, right? We have this whole fantasy, oh, you're innocent until proven guilty. That's horseshit. If you're poor, you're in jail even though you're not, you've not been proven guilty. And so the bail project, now, now, why does that matter? Well, what happens is, first of all, 40% of prison death and 40% of prison rape happens in the first week you're in jail. Right. So for people who don't know, jail is for one year and under and prison is for one year and over. So you go to jail, you're in this big crowded room, you don't know, you know, your head from your, your tail at that point. You're you're nervous and discombobulated. And you don't have your cell phone. You can't call your wife and tell her what's going on. You know, you can't call your job. You're worried you lose your job. And so what do people do? They take a plea. Please let me out of here. They take a plea. If you bail someone out, 50% of the time the charges get dropped. If you leave them in jail, they are 70% more likely to take a plea. And the average bail like we pay is about $1,200. And so we set up a fund. Now it's going to operate in it's going to operate in 25 cities. I think we're in 15 right now, where we literally just show up and pay people's bail. And we try to pick the people that we know will come back. Bail was originally set up to uh, ensure people would come back to, to prison. Well, you know, the bail project in New York over 12 years proved that paying these people bail so it's not their money, they still come back. Like most people will come back to their court date. They need help. They need a text message to remind them. Sometimes they need transportation. And so that was just the start of it. It was so unjust. And because we did this on scale, I took some of my Ethereum profits. I felt a little guilty. I I'd made so much money on these damn cryptocurrencies that I, quite frankly, at that point, was still trying to figure out what they were. Uh, and so I put a big donation to the bail project. And I realized if I was going to run a big organization, I better understand the criminal justice landscape. And the more you dig in, the more angry you get. And, you know, I'm... It's systematically set up against... I mean, when you talk about Meet Mill's story and, and you know, his story got publicized, but forget his story. When I met just with, with me recently, 10 people that were on parole in New York, and every one of them had a story that you actually you would say, I don't believe that if you hadn't heard the other nine. The parole system in America, we have four and a half million people on parole. Half of the people that will go to jail this year. So this year, 2019, 5 million individual people will spend at least one day in jail. 5 million new people, new jail visits. Half of them are because they violated their parole. You violate your parole because you got a speeding ticket, because you did an illegal U-turn, because you were hanging out with a felon. Well, in half these neighborhoods, everyone's a felon. Uh, because you were 30 minutes late to your parole meeting. Well, the goddamn subway didn't work. And so... It's literally like we're taking marbles and putting them in front of these already traumatized people and saying, okay, just walk. Oh, you just fell down, then you go back in jail. I mean, it's the stupidest system. If we took half the money we spent on parole and put it into some kind of rehab system, you know, economic rehab, job training rehab, drug and alcohol rehab, you know, trauma rehab, getting people ready to be part of society, uh, we'd be so better off. We took a bunch of people to visit prisons in Norway and, and in Germany. And I would tell you, Norway gets a 99 out of 100. Germany gets like a 95 out of 100. And we get like a 13 out of 100. We're that far apart. The moment you're convicted there, you lose your liberty. Hey, you lose three months, three years. Their sentences are one third as long as ours. 
And everybody there is working on your rehabilitation. How do we make them a productive citizen? The people that run the prisons in Norway and Germany have PhD, it's in rehabilitation. The people that run our prisons started as prison guards with no education. I mean, it, it, we have the most degrading system. It's let me degrade you, debase you, traumatize you from the start. Strip searching, shitting in public. Hey, you, you, you shit right there in front of everybody. Like, no, I like my privacy. Well, you've lost that right. And so we strip people of every last right of every last shred of dignity. And then we expect them to come out and be productive citizens. It's, it's inane. And is it racist because it... It's shockingly racist, right? This, this has its legacy in slavery. If you talk to Brian Stevenson, who I think is like my American hero, he tells a wonderful story of us never really, I mean, not a wonderful, painful story of us never really dealing with the legacy of slavery, right? If you go to Germany, they've got the Holocaust Memorial all over the place, right? We still have monuments to the Confederacy. Like, we're not dealing with legacy of slavery, so we're doing the opposite. Let's fly the Confederate flag. There are 59 memorials to the Confederacy in Montgomery, Alabama, which is a pretty much all black city these days. It just elected its first black mayor. Thank goodness. You know, there are two schools are called, public schools are called Jefferson Davis and, and Robert E. Lee. I mean, you can't make that shit up. And so we never really have dealt with that legacy. I think that's part of it. You know, if you just walk into a jail, it's pretty black and brown. And so then we have this kind of prison to school pipeline. Uh, our school to prison pipeline. Uh, one of the things we're working now, I'm actually writing an editorial, is trying to get the GI Bill re-put in for people in jail. Like, how stupid. We put you in jail, but you can't get an educational grant. We should want our prisoners, you know, our, our incarcerated to, to get educated so they can get a job when they get out. Hmm. And part of it's just economics. It's why, it's why it's bipartisan. It's why the Republicans have gotten involved. They're like, well, this is stupid. It cost $186,000 to keep someone at Rikers for a year. Think about that. You could send someone to Harvard for four years, one year at Rikers. Now, that's not normal. Normal is about $40,000 to keep someone in jail in the country and maybe fifty-five, sixty dollars in New York State. But it's still $60,000 freaking dollars. Right. Like, it's insane. Now you're you, going to be fired up. Yeah, I know. I know. That's what I want to do. And, and like, what other, what other projects are you working on outside of Galaxy and crypto and hedge fund? I mean, you spent a lot of time on the bail project. But you do a— you're, you're spending all kinds of time doing all kinds of interesting stuff. Uh, you know, so we're doing a lot around the whole criminal justice space, right, from bail to parole. So that's a real big bucket. Uh, I still get involved with the U.S. wrestling team some. You saved – you. I say you single-handedly saved Olympic wrestling. You know, uh, Come on. You're too modest. Nobody single-handedly does anything on, on the planet. That's not true. I, I was certainly part of the, uh, the, <laughs> the team effort. I happened to be the first guy on TV, and I was like, oh, these guys picked the fight with the wrong group of guys. They canceled uh, the funding for – They. The idea was they were going to throw wrestling out of the Olympics, which was one of the most inane ideas. And so – um, it wasn't that hard to change the psychology. What, what I learned in that was just how corrupt the IOC is. And we fought hard publicly, you know, both here and abroad. Like it wasn't, a, you know, the, the Russians were fighting, the Iranians were fighting. Wrestling is, is a sport that happens in 196 countries. Uh, I, I've gone to events, uh, all kinds of sporting events. And Mike is like, Mother Teresa to wrestlers. <laughs> of all, like, every country, people are like, that's Mike Novogratz. He saved wrestling. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. You know, the thing about wrestling, which is cool, is that there's a fraternity. It's such a hard sport. And you see these guys with these ugly-looking ears, and you're like, yeah, I like that guy. <laughs> and I, 
I've met thousands of wrestlers. I can't only think of one or two I didn't like. I mean, 98% of them, I, they're, they're buddies in, in seconds. Uh, mostly knuckleheads, you know, <laughs> but good guys in general. So, I mean, you, you, you have like a whole trading floor to manage. I want to get you out of here. One, one question, because, you know, we've had guests here and I know sometimes people are like, why are you talking to Mike? And hopefully you understand, but one advice, because I know you have invested in restaurants. I don't want people to bother you for investing in restaurants, but what's one of the biggest problems you see that chefs or restaurateurs create for themselves when they want to start a restaurant or to get funding for a restaurant? What's, what's the biggest problem that makes you allergic to it? So the biggest thing I've seen, and I've had a lot of failed restaurant investments, um, is that the chef slash entrepreneur wants to spend way too much decorating his place. Like, oh, it's a $5 million build out. People don't come to the restaurant because you've got the fancy couch or the beautiful chandelier. They come because of the ambiance and the food. And so, especially first timers who aren't getting the big corporate backing, spend a lot less on CapEx because restaurants are low margin businesses. And so like a great restaurant, if it does $5 million a year and that's a success, and I'm sure in some cities it's a monster success. With a 12% margin, there's $600,000. If you spent $6 million building it, it's a long time before you're paying that goddamn money back. Mm-hmm. And so spend less on the capex. And so, you know, when we invest in anything, not just restaurants, we look for CEO, CEO, CEO. Who's, who's going to drive this thing? Whose vision? Who am I betting on? Will he be able to pivot? Is he smart on his feet? Do I like him? Does he share my ethos? Um, and so that's the other thing. I think you better, you know, you better meet the guy who's going who's gonna to run the, the place and like the guy. All right. We'll get you out of here, Mike. David, thanks a ton. <laughs> that was my conversation with Mike Novogratz. Uh, man, I can't believe he talked about Fortnite and World of Warcraft I always wanted to know what the hell uh, cryptocurrency or blockchain technology was or is. Honestly, I still don't fucking know what the hell that is. The database, I didn't want to sound like a dumbass when I was talking to him, but quite frankly, I don't understand, literally, I still don't even understand how the cloud works. How the hell am I going to know what cryptocurrency is? It just doesn't make any sense to me. I get it in, I guess, practice or theory, but whatever. Um, That's not why I wanted to have him on the podcast, but... Maybe we should learn about it if this is how we're going to uh, pay for food in the future. Anyway, wanted to get to a couple Ask Dave at MajorDomoMedia.com questions. Uh, This go around, we're going to go to a five-star iTunes entry. Again, give us five stars on our iTunes iPod page and send in a question and we will answer it. Shout out to Mina Kimes for giving us that idea. And again, to Mina Kimes for hosting the new ESPN Daily podcast. Uh, so check her new show out. Anyway, uh, five-star iTunes from Ali in Austin. Ali asks, I find so many of the discussions on this show so helpful. I was especially interested in the conversation with Angela Duckworth about grit, resolve, and increasing your suffering. As an adolescent, I was failing in school, and my parents tried everything private schools, tutors, etc., but nothing worked. One summer, we visited Pakistan, where I was born and my father is from. 
When the school was over, my parents told me that I wasn't coming home. I stayed with my aunt and uncle and attended school in Pakistan, where I would get more attention and a better schooling in their mind. This was their attempt at fixing things, and it actually worked. I hated it at the time, but I really discovered a lot of resolve and strength through that experience. It was only years and years later in therapy, however, that I began to unpack the effect it had on me. Although I didn't see it in this way at the time, and I understand my parents' motivation, it felt like being abandoned and left in a country I didn't know or understand. How do you approach parenting and managing slash leading and increasing suffering while also protecting from long-term or not immediately apparent trauma or damage? Allie from Austin, thank you for sending that brave question in. If you didn't listen to that podcast with Angela Duckworth, it's a meandering, long conversation that we talk about a lot, a lot of different things. But we really sort of talk about this idea of suffering and, and working through pain and having the grit to come out the other side and how that really makes you better. And Angela's book, Grit, again, has real data in her character lab. She She has wealth of information that sort of supports the idea that maybe we should be challenging ourselves harder, not less, to increase our character. And Ali, I can relate, even though I'm not from Pakistan and I wasn't technically abandoned, but, you know, it's hard for me. I, I've been in psychiatric therapy for 15 years, and I still deal with a lot of the the difficulties of being raised by two parents that were survivors of war. I always forget that they lived through the Korean War. And as kids were in occupied, like Japan occupied Korea, and it's tough. And their upbringings were vastly different than what we grew up in, particularly the immigrant diaspora challenges that they were presented with. So, you know, I have a lot of issues, right? A lot of anger, a lot of anger at, at some of the ways and things that I had to experience. And I think it has made me who I am today. And it has caused me a lot of trauma and a lot of suffering. And I'm learning how to forgive because I have to remind myself that I didn't grow up in a war. And again, I don't know if I'm answering your question, Ali, but a lot of this is something I think about now as a parent because I think being present is meaning what David Foster Wallace has always said, challenging your default setting. And just because something happened to me I have to try my best to make sure that I don't just sort of do the same thing. And being present means having options as to how things might unfold. And again, I, I've used this example. I'll use it again. Hugo hasn't learned how to walk yet. And we've child-proofed so many things. But no matter what, he's going to get hurt. He's going to fall. He's going to get cut. And the conversation I have with Grace right now is, what's the right balance? So he doesn't live in a world where he's free from pain and suffering. And I, again, I am always reminded of the, the story of Siddhartha and, and the, the beginnings and origins of, of Buddha. Again, not to talk about crazy religious connotations and ideals, but I'll never forget that, that like, it's not something you can turn your back from. And everyone's different and everyone has their own suffering and trauma. And this might be dangerous advice, but I think you got to find a a way to balance it. And obviously, Ali, from whatever you, you've experienced, you've come out the other side, and I, I commend you for that. But it's something that I have a lot of, lot of heartache over, and it's something that as a new parent, I, I really struggle with. 
And it's something, quite frankly, I, I see a lot. Like Marguerite Mariscal is the new CEO, and it hurts me to see her saddled and burdened with responsibilities that that I, I think is is still mine to deal with. And I, I don't want her to feel pain. I, I think that's just one thing that if you love someone and the people around you, you want them to not feel pain. And the fucking crazy thing is maybe the best way to love them is for them to feel pain, to have them build up their character. And if I'm having a hard time articulating this, Ali, it's because I really don't have the answer. It's really hard but I do think that being present means finding that right balance between learning how to deal with suffering. And it's not something you can just turn away from and put your head in the sand. But Ali from Austin, thank you. Anyway, Taichi Nakashima emails in. Again, you can always email us at askdave at majordomomedia.com and we'll get to your, your questions. So Taichi asks to askdave at Media. You've talked a lot about the craziness and frustrations of the industry, but I'm wondering, what really gives you joy in the industry? <laughs> I, I always have to wonder that, Taichi. It is, uh, I think when I try to explain it, that it sometimes seems 90% absurdly stupid, and it's like 10% something that you remind yourself, this is why we do what we do. And uh, recently, I was talking to Sean Gray. Uh, we we had a corporate retreat recently, and and Su Wang Ruiz, and they, ex- they described in a, a moment recently where they we had some serious facility issues, like shit just always goes wrong in restaurants in the most inopportune times. And without going too much into detail, they found a way to make it work for the people that booked out a private dining room for us, and it was. Out of left field idea, but it worked. Like we were able, it's like sometimes the best fucking moments, to, the reason why we do what we do is that when you're able to turn what is normally going to be a shitty situation and you turn it into gold and it's that, that sort of feeling of euphoria, I would imagine is like some kind of drug hit, like heroin or something, because like you don't remember the bad. You only remember the good sometimes. Not sometimes, like all the time. And that that feeling of high, of achievement, of accomplishment is so intoxicating that it allows you to forget about the drudgery and the stupidity of the work life that most people have, particularly myself in this business. And I don't know if that's a good way of answering your question, Taiichi, but it oftentimes, maybe it's not 90-10, it's 99% dumb as fuck. And this 1% is so euphoric that it allows you to continue doing it day in, day out. And that's when you're like, this is the best fucking job in the world. I wouldn't change it for anything. And if you know what I'm talking about, you're in this industry, or not just this industry, any job where it just is like, doesn't make any sense. It's absurdly stupid on a metaphysical existential level. Yet somehow you find meaning in it. And those moments where everything makes sense and then it goes away. And then you're constantly chasing for it. That's what gives me joy. And sometimes that is that manifests in like someone that just entered this profession. You've been training them and done a horrible job for weeks and months on end. But the day they get it, right? Like the day they learn how to do their station, right? The day they learn how to break down fish properly and put everything away. The day they learn how to season things, like... It just is so full of so many painful moments. But when you see it work, it literally gives you life. And it, it's just, that's for me, Taiichi, what I love most about it. 
And I get amped as fuck talking about how meaningful it can be because I have to remind myself that it does exist and there is a reason to working as hard as everyone does. Anyway, thank you guys for sending those questions in. I've talked too much and I worry that it was just rambling, incoherent mess. Give us five stars, however you rate this, on iTunes. Keep on sending those questions in to askdavidmajordomomedia.com. As always, we appreciate the support. Talk to you guys next week. Thank you.